your second holy day of obligation in five weeks. We are in the master class. And uh, fortunately for us, Christmas falls on a Sunday, so we can scratch that one right off. But what you may not know is up until the beginning of the 20th century, uh, under the old liturgical calendar, there were up to as many as 36 holy days of obligation uh, until the papacy of Pope Pius X who reduced them. Maybe that's how he put himself on the path to become a saint, but that was on the average of three a month. That's a lot. Uh, Now we're down to five, Uh, but most of them are about the Blessed Mother, and that's great. And uh, this one especially, tonight is perfect during the Advent season, but each year the readings are exactly the same for the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. It always starts with this great passage from Genesis with Adam and Eve having to explain themselves. Uh, Hearing this reading reminds me of when I was a baby priest at a young pastor. The school there at the parish had on the first Friday of the month, the Sacred Heart Kids Club. So after school one day, I went to visit with the children there at the Sacred Heart Kids Club, and they were looking at a children's Bible. It's one of my favorites. It had pictures in it. And uh, so I started going through these stories with the children, showing them the pictures. And then there was a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. And I asked them, what's happening in this picture? And uh, little Gabby, who then was probably about six, now she's married, uh, she said, isn't that when God took their clothes? (laughs) No, Gabby, I think she's got the right scene, but she's blaming the wrong person, that's for sure. However, Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden. They're hiding. Are they hiding from God? Are they hiding from themselves? Are they hiding from each other? Remains to be seen. But they're hidden there because what was once beautiful has now become shameful. They have broken the only rule that God set for them, which was to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, They ruined everything for everyone by eating that fruit that was sweet in their mouth but sour in their stomach. They were made in the image and likeness of God. The serpent convinced them if they ate that tree, they would be like God. That's why he's the prince of lies, because he promised them the very thing he was going to take from them. And Adam and Eve could not see for the, the forest for the tree, pun intended, that by giving in to him, they were going to lose something they already had. Well, this is the problem. God already knows where they are. God already knows what they've done, but he's giving them a chance to make their confession of their sin, their original sin, the first sinner's. And so he starts with Adam. Adam, why did you eat from the fruit to the tree? Without hesitation, she made me do it. How quick he is to throw Eve under that bus. And yet to try to redeem herself when God then sets his sight on Eve. Eve, why did you eat the fruit? The devil made me do it. The serpent tricked me into it. With the first sin comes the first excuses And we see that people have been blaming other people for their faults and failings for thousands of years. And where there is no accountability and there is no responsibility, then there's really no motivation for people to try to change. It's somebody else's fault. It's society. It's my ancestry. It's the world situation. It's my spouse. It's my parents. It's my kids. It's my coworkers. It's my neighbors. Uh, We're still there with Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, still blaming one another when we could just say, God, you already know what I've done. I'm sorry. Because he would say, I already knew and I already loved you and my already son died that you might be forgiven. But getting back to the garden, There were consequences. Adam and Eve lost their ability to stay in the garden. They lost their eternity. They were going to become mortals like the rest of us. 
they found out that God wasn't just going to put the bread on their table. Adam was now going to have to work for it. Uh, Eve was going to suffer in childbirth, and they were going to have to leave that garden. So there's the penalty, there's the consequences, but fortunately for us, there's also the remedy. And that's where the Immaculate Conception comes in. We're preparing four weeks for the coming of the Christ at Christmas. The question is, how long was God preparing for the coming of His Son into the flesh, into this world to seek and save the lost? Was He preparing from the moment Jesus was born? Was He preparing from the moment of the Annunciation when Jesus was placed in Mary's womb? Was He preparing from the moment to the Immaculate Conception when Mary was placed without sin in the womb of her mother, St. Anne? Or was He planning from the moment that the gate clicked behind Adam and Eve when they were cast out of that garden? I'm going to start there. We're through a process that lasted for millennia. God prepared the world for the coming of himself in the flesh, his son, to be our savior. By process, prophets, patriarchs, and judges, all preparing the way for and pointing the way toward the coming of the Christ, will at every twist, turn and stage, calling people of every country to repent of their sins and, unlike Adam and Eve, to stop blaming other people for them. That's why the Immaculate Conception is so important during the Advent season, because it reminds us not only that we should be preparing for the coming of the Christ, it reminds us how long God was preparing for the coming of the Christ, how long He was preparing His Son for that mission to save a world mired in darkness and death. We have so many different titles for the Blessed Mother. She is the Queen of the Miraculous Medal. She's Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Our Lady of Knock. She's a refuge of sinners. She's Our Lady of Charity, uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. You name it, so many different titles for the Blessed Mother. What were the titles that Mary liked? What were the titles that were near and dear to her heart? First and foremost, probably mom, when Jesus referred to her as that. Wife and Joseph, daughter, by God himself, but there is something that Mary self-identified as, and that is the Immaculate Conception. And there's two prominent examples, one of which should be very near and dear to our hearts in this parish. Uh, we are the Queen of the Miraculous Metal Parish, and it stems from an apparition of our Blessed Mother in 1830 to St. Catherine Labore in that statue right there by the relics between the confessionals. She was a sister of charity, founded by St. Vincent de Paul. And in 1830, in Paris, uh, one night in the summer, while she was trying to go to bed, uh, all of a sudden, a little angel, a little boyish angel, appeared in her room and said, you have to go to the chapel. It's 1130 at night. Her greatest fear wasn't why this angel ghost is appearing in my room, but she'd be caught if she left her cell and get in trouble with Mother Superior. Uh, but she went, and she saw Our Lady three times in that chapel, uh, there in July, again in November, and again in December of 1830, just before Christmas. And it was in that last sighting that the Blessed Mother gave to Catherine Labore in the Rue de Bac in Paris the Miraculous Medal and said, that's exactly how the Blessed Mother appeared to her there. And then she said, take this and have a medal struck and tell people to pray with it. And for a long time, it was referred to as the Medal of Victory because so many miracles and prayers were granted through its intercession. Only in more recent times did it become known as the Miraculous Medal precisely because of how many wondrous things have happened through Our Lady's intercession with this devotion. But on that disc, on the medal itself, 
what does it say? O Mary, conceived without sin. That's what the Blessed Mother told Catherine Labrade to tell the world, that Mary was conceived without sin. That's how she understood herself. That reminds us that in the salvation story, Mary knew she was but a lowly handmaid of the Lord. It's by God's grace and the merits of the Son she was privileged to carry in her womb that God prepared her as that singular, stainless vessel of devotion, preserved free from all sin so she could be a monstrance, a tabernacle in which the Word would become flesh. But that's only the first of the two examples. That was 1830. In 1854, Pope Pius IX declared, defined the doctrine of Mary's Immaculate Conception, 1854. That doesn't mean that he decided just in that year, oh, by the way, we think Mary was conceived without sin, and meant that he was adding it to the doctrine of the faith as a long-held belief, even to the time of the apostles and the fathers of the church, namely that he was putting the church's official seal of approval and stamp on this fact of faith, that the church has always believed that Mary was preserved, free from sin, from the moment of her conception dovetails nicely with the assumption at the end of her life that it begins and ends and all moments in between without sin. That was 1854. But four years later, still in Catholic France, there was a 12-year-old girl who had never had formal religious instruction of any time named Bernadette. And she was wandering around outside of the little village of Lourdes in France and came to the cave at Massabier. And then there on a rock above her, she saw the most beautiful woman she had ever seen. And after she recovered her voice and was done with her trembling and fear and shaking at what this wondrous ghostly apparition might mean, she asked the woman above her, who are you? And the woman she saw, whom we now call Our Lady of Lords, said this, I am the Immaculate Conception. Once again, we have so many titles for the Blessed Mother. She called herself the Immaculate Conception. She understood herself to be conceived without sin. But what about Gabriel in the image uh, depicted for us today in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke? He didn't even refer to her as Mary, the title given her by her parents. Instead, what does he say? Hail, full of grace, as if full of grace was her name. And that was Gabriel, an archangel, a messenger of God, giving us that same recognition. This one is different. This one's been prepared. This one is chosen. All of this a reminder to us of why Our Lady, who is sinless, is such an exemplar. She is the model of Christians, not Jesus. Mary is the model of Christians because she knows what it's like to be obedient to God the Father. She knows what it's like to be obedient to God the Son. And we would do well to imitate her in her humility, in her purity, in her abandonment to the will of God, in her obedience to the word and the law of God, uh, but also in total trust that whatever God asks of her is greater than anything she might ever require of herself. That is why she can say with such faith throughout the centuries, let it be done to me according to your word.